today on Tea and Teaching. It's definitely, Steve, something that interests me because in, in my role of, of sort of transition lead in the different schools mm. I've worked in, what's been interesting is you've covered a lot of the categories that that are, you know, these things that are asked about yeah. by high schools. But more important than the categories is the process and the listening. So I've had meetings with Zenkos and safeguarding teams where I've gone through almost child by child through a cohort and I'm sat there thinking they're really taking on what I'm saying and they're really listening and they're really attentive to this and I'm worried about it. I've had others where I think you're just ticking a box, getting this job done and then you're off to the next school. And I get that we're only one of, you know, 10 other local feeder schools or something or four or five other local feeder schools. But you really need to listen to what I'm telling you here is... Why do kids go to secondary school? They go there to get grades at the end of year 11 or year 13 so they can go off and do whatever apprenticeships university whatever's right for them and maybe it's a bit vaguer of what the what we consider the point of primary to be is it to for them to do really well in their sats or is it to prepare them for secondary school so we can continue their prep like it's like maybe an existential question of like secondary we kind of know the point of us get the grades whether that's right or wrong is a, a different question but primary maybe you, you've got more questions you can ask in that in that meeting when you talk about what is primary but the bit about topic work project whatever you want to say you said primaries do it really well right i'm going to be controversial here and say i don't think a lot of primaries do do that well <gasps> i think i think a lot of uh primary schools got into the habit of doing some really meaningless topic work for many many years and it caused lots and lots of damage right so that's going to be a really unpopular opinion with some people and very popular with a few others welcome to tea and teaching the podcast you can listen to in your tea break i'm mike harrowell and with me as always is arthur moore hello arthur hello arthur Hello, Arthur, I just said. I'm so used to introducing myself. Mike, fantastic intro. Fantastic intro. Thank you. It's a rare treat that I get to do the introductions. Um, can you tell us, though, Arthur, who are we speaking to today? Got this nailed, Mike. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, today, Mike, we're speaking to Russ and Steve from the Dynamic Deputies podcast. Um, the four of us are going to be sharing our thoughts on the primary-secondary relationship. We're going to be talking about things we can learn from each other. We're going to be talking about what makes us different, but in brilliant ways and what we can learn from each other. So everyone, go and put on the kettle, get a cup of tea. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Russ and Steve from the Dynamic Deputies. And welcome to the Tea and Teaching Dynamic uh, Deputies crossover episode. Hello, Russ. Hello, Mike. Hello, Steve. How are we all today? Hello. Evening. Very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm great. And Mike, we didn't hear from you. You okay? I was worried. I'm all good, Arthur. I'm very, very excited. (laughs) I was worried then, Mike. I was really quite worried. So we're both secondary. Me and Mike are secondary. Russ and Steve, you are primary people. So I thought it'd be really nice if we had a little chat about primary, secondary, what we can learn from each other, where we kind of differ, um, and kind of hopefully learn some lessons from each other and take them into our teaching. Um, Russ, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, no problem. Well, it's great to be here to talk to you all guys. And it's so nice for me and Steve to 
collaborate a little bit with some secondary colleagues. So what a great opportunity. And we hope hope everyone enjoys the chat. Um, well, look, why don't we start with a topic? I know before we hit record, Arthur, you got very fired up when I mentioned this word and it's something that excites me and it's transition. Ooh. So it's such <laughs> visibly sort of shaking on the screen right now. Um, yeah, transition. It's such a key thing, isn't it? And I've led on transition from sort of six to seven for a few years in different schools and things. And I've seen it done really well, really badly. So I guess I'm, I'm really curious from, from a secondary background, whether, whether you've seen that really evolve and change over the years. So that'll be an interesting reflection if I come to you in a minute, um, Mike, on that one. Um, for, for me, it's enormous you know our children live in this really sheltered world in primary you know depending on the side size of their primary school my daughter is in year six right now in a village school of about 120 kids and then she's going to join this big uh in her case this big um co-ed grammar school and that's going to be a such a different world and she's going to get a bus there and she's going to have so many more teachers than she's ever had in her life and her it's going to blow her blow her mind when she goes there and as a sort of a teacher, deputy head, I, I do a lot of pastoral work and I support some really vulnerable children and I sort of hold them in my hands, looking after them, making sure their needs are met, liaising with their parents, protecting them and so on. And then I, I sort of say goodbye and let them go off mm -hmm. into this, again, this big intimidating um, world, or, or at least they expect it to be. And I, sometimes they go off and they thrive. And sometimes I hear really sad stories of it going really wrong. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to come to you, Mike, and just hear what your reflections are initially on that whole journey from primary into secondary. Yeah, it's such an important step, isn't it? And I guess I'm gonna talk for a while without referring to Arthur, who's, who's actually done this as part of his masters. Um, but I guess there's two aspects of this, isn't it? Is there's transition for the, the child. What's that going to be like getting on the bus with a load of people you don't know, walking into a school that's maybe 10 times the size of the school you've been at, having to move through busy corridors, having different teachers that you've got to get used to. But the flip side of that is there's also a parent who needs support with that transition as well of watching their child get on the bus and knowing that they're going to be brushing past 17, 18 year olds in the corridor, which can be quite an intimidating thing from a parent's point of view as well. I know from being uh, or working in a secondary school, how important that process is for us um, in terms of students coming in and feeling settled in the school straight away, understanding that the school is not a big scary place where they're going to get detentions every day, that it's a real welcoming place. It's just, a different format from primary, um, but also the, the information that we get from primary schools about each student, whether that's academic or pastoral, that's so, so valuable to us as well. And I know Arthur, you can probably speak about this as a, a maths teacher, um, but I know like it's probably the first, I would say the first half term sometimes can almost be a backward step for a lot of students because teachers don't know their starting points necessarily. They don't know their personalities. They don't know um, what their experiences are in primary. So we almost waste that first six or seven weeks just getting to know students pastorally and academically as well. So yeah, I, I, I agree that that transition process is so, so important for 
parents, for students and for the secondary schools as well. Arthur, do you want to chime in on that and use your academic um, background on this one? <laughs> well, it's just nice to have a master's, Mike, as we've discussed before. Uh, <laughs> I feel it's really important to have one, but that's just me. I think it's really nice that we've kicked off this kind of conversation about primary secondary of talking about that movement between the two. But more, I'm more happy the fact that Mike has obviously been paying attention to some of the CPD I've been delivering to him over <laughs> years, talking about kind of the three facets of kind of transition. It's a transition for the students pastorally. It's a transition for their learning, kind of their academic learning, but also the parent role is massive. And for my kind of experience and doing kind of reading of people who've done much bigger studies than mine, of the parents are often forgotten in that transition process. And the students who are supported in that transition with their parents just do better because they're having those conversations at home. They're, it's not such a big deal. Their parents have probably talked to them over the summer or going on. Transition for me up to secondary kind of starts at the end of year five. That's when those conversations start having. Um, so I think that's the first thing of kind of when you're focusing on transition as a primary, like make sure the parents are kind of involved with that because we don't just get past the student, we don't get to part their grades, we get past their, their families and their, their background and who they are. I think, Mike, what you said about the pastoral information is really interesting. I think for me as a maths teacher, I actually always paid more attention to any pastoral information I got more than maybe the, the academic side. And I think that's because students typically in secondary school are coming from so many different schools and so many different learning that you kind of have to strip it back to basics and maths. I kind of like, I'm, I'm sure was, uh, parents are listening to me like, why are they doing tests in the first week of year seven? And the reason they do it is because we want to get as much information as we can on them. So when you're talking about information being passed, and I don't know what you think about this, Mike, but like, I always try to get, I want that pastoral information. The academic stuff, that's where hopefully my expertise as a teacher, hopefully my training as a teacher will allow me to do that. But getting to know them as, as learners before I get to know them as mathematicians, especially in year seven, I found that like really important. I don't know if that, is that the same for P, Mike? Uh, it's not. I mean, you get, I mean, I think it's getting better with P specialists in primary now. Um, but for me, I, I mean, coming in from, I zero experience of, of, you know, teaching year seven in the classroom, really. But I, I probably wouldn't want to spend my first couple of lessons or you know, two or three lessons in doing a test with those students. And because if transition's done well, surely there's there's a whole bank of information and data you can take from the primary schools about those children. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never... I've never had an overview of what information students necessarily come from primary school with. So uh, maybe you guys work in primary schools and tell us what, what do you kind of hand over to the secondary schools and, and what are we provided with in the kind of background? I was going to say, what do you, what do you yeah. think we get? <laughs> See, that would be the interesting question, actually, because what we, we know we hopefully hand over, and it's pretty consistent, is... We will always give the academic gradings from the SATs, for example. We'll look at children in terms of personality, who they get on with and who they don't get on with. Because when, when you think about the teacher who does this, they have these children in the classroom all day, every day, 30 children. They will know the, the link parents of who this child could rub up the wrong way if they're stuck in a, a new form in year seven with, or who they are best with to get the, 
the personality to come out of them, particularly if you think of excruciatingly shy children. If there's one person that's going to their school, we will always be saying, pair them together. And I can think of some of the local schools, um, the girls' schools in particular, we send about 20, 20 girls there. We know who we would like to see go into forms there, for example. But other than that, we, we do any gifted and talented um, training or exercise that the children might do, particularly when you're talking about sport, if there's a child that's represented at the local town level or county, for example, we will let you know that. But what you get, I don't always know. We, we meet with the SENCOs of some of the schools that do transition better than others. Um, and we'll get the parents into those meetings. So I love what you're saying, Arthur, about it is that triangulation of parent, school, child. We've really got to get everyone in the room before they go off. And we will even do taster days with transition for our more vulnerable children. That's not to say, though, when I always think about this and think about my own children who have gone on to secondary, so the, the one that's on the SEND list probably didn't need it as much as the one that wasn't because she was very nervous about going into a new school because of what Russell said. When she left year six, there wasn't even a full class. So she's gone from a tiny school into a school where they had 240 girls in a year. For her, that was huge. That was emotionally overwhelming. Whereas my child, who's on the SEND list, he was uh, bigger primary school because we expanded over time. But both of those children had me there, who was deputy head by the time they left, and mum worked there as well. So they've gone from being so mollycoddled and protected to, right, off you go. Let's get the bus to school. Let's sort out your own lessons. Uh, remember your tyre. Remember your blazer all day, every day. And naturally, um, that doesn't always happen. So I'd be really interested in what you get as teachers instead of as the year seven coordinator maybe when they turn up into your classrooms i mean it's definitely steve something that interests me because it, in my role of of sort of transition lead in the different schools mm. i've worked in what's been interesting is you've covered a lot of the categories that that are you know these things that are asked about yeah. by high schools but more important than the categories is the process and the listening mm. so i've had meetings with senkos and safeguarding teams where i've gone through almost child by child through a cohort and i'm sat there thinking they're really taking on what i'm saying and they're really listening and they're really attentive to this and i'm worried about it. i've had others where i think you're just ticking a box getting this job done and then you're off to the next school and i get that we're only one of you know 10 other local feeder schools or something or four or five other local feeder schools but you really need to listen to what I'm telling you here as as you said Steve there you know you've got the teacher that's had that kid all the time they're the expert on them or they really really know what's worked for that child and I think you know in primary schools we are very conscious that you're not going to be able to replicate everything that we do in that primary world because you're in such a more complex environment I just think you know, secondary I've got such respect for how high school teachers have to just adapt to these different sets of children throughout the day who they can't get to know very much they might see them for an hour a week um, but we're giving you some really valuable knowledge so I guess throwing it back to you guys I'm interested in when we share all that wealth of stuff what what does happen because it's a bit of a mystery to me how does that end up translating to the 20 odd teachers that might teach that group of children across the week mike have you got some uh, insights for me i'd love to know yeah that. i mean <laughs> i worked in a, a really unique school i think we had 36 primary feeder schools 
gosh. So the, the opportunity for students to slip through that net and, or, or even just for the, the Senko or the head of year seven to have meetings with that many members of staff, there were always students who came to us. And I mean, apart from some information on a, a paper, we had no knowledge of them. So what the school actually did was we used to take the whole year group away for the first week. They used to go to a bushcraft trip and it would, I mean, it was real like rough and tumble stuff that you sort of had maybe 60 kids in an individual campsite and these campsites kind of dotted around and one portaloo for 60 kids and stuff and it was I mean it was really good for us because it pushed the students straight out of their comfort zone we could see who would cope with that really well we could see who was really overly confident with it and we could see who absolutely just kind of retreated into themselves and, and needed that extra support from us um the flip side of that is that's a really daunting thing you're not just going to a new school you're going away from your parents for three or four nights or whatever it was um so we found it really useful i know it was probably very overwhelming for certain students um and, and especially students with certain sen um diagnoses um but we found that really useful to kind of really get to know the students outside of a school setting and outside their comfort zone as well the problem for me, Mike, is when you were a teacher, so you guys have gone through all this information and spin out all this information. And what it condenses down to is an Excel spreadsheet with a load of acronyms. And I've just I've just got a name in front of me with some acronyms. And those acronyms we know can mean so many things. So what I thought was really important in year seven is, you know, at the start of the year when you're doing your inset days and the Senko stands up and goes, right, we're going to do a review of the kids. And quite often most kids in year 9, 10, 11, you've taught them, you kind of get it. But you need to spend real dedicated time to those pupils coming to year 7. You need to spend more time on those pupils in year 7 than you are to the students who you already know because they're new. Um, and you need to kind of acknowledge that and try and... I think what Mike's getting at with kind of the trip idea was like trying to get to know the students, not just their acronyms, not just their grades. We were in very fortunate position when I worked in a, an all through school. The best thing I did was I made it like the head of year seven went on the year six residential trip. And that had the biggest impact of almost anything because they got to know the students at seven o'clock at night when they're mowing. You get to know them on the coach. You get to see who they are. So that was a really important thing for me. So trying to get to know certain pupils in those inset days is really important and not just having it as a tick box exercise of, right, everyone into this room, we're going to go through the SEN kids, here are the ones in year seven, list on acronyms, right, next. No, we need to spend some time on those. And I think that's when it filters, the when you start with that, the next year you can go further and you can talk about friendship groups that we need to know of. And it, it builds on, it's not just going to happen in one year. So like, I think we could do the whole pod on transition. Mm. like yeah. Because I think it is fundamentally what we're talking about today but I think the thing I would kind of emphasize to prime is like remember it's the student and the parent who are transitioning mm. and then from a secondary perspective Mike like we need to not just go into primaries and be like right tell us about the kids tick the boxes like we we need to listen and then we need to find a way to communicate that to the teachers who are going to be meeting these students day one because quite often the first person they meet when they come to secondary school it's not going to be the Senko it's going to be their form tutor, it's going to be their maths teacher, it's going to be the English teacher. So it's about getting good information and then making sure the right people are hearing that information.
That's great advice. And just a last thing on that and making sure that every, every teacher gets that, because I had a pupil last year who had lots of additional needs and there were some very, very clear cut things you needed to do for him if he hit crisis point in terms of his anxiety levels in a lesson. And they heard that loud and clear in the transition. Fantastic. And I saw him after about a week and I said, how's it going? Have you remembered to do X, Y and Z if you need to? Because I knew I knew the high school had agreed to certain things he needed to do if he needed to exit, for example, which was a clear thing he needed to be able to do in a certain sense. He said, yeah, they do it in this lesson, this lesson, this lesson, this lesson. The maths teacher didn't let me do it. And it was that one lesson <laughs> where that hadn't been allowed that had caused so much anxiety for him. So just, yeah, making sure that lands for everyone. Yeah, sorry about that, Russ. I just forgot to read that email. <laughs> you know, I, I sent you three separate emails, Arthur, but... Russ, can I just follow up? Did you, yeah. add, did you act on it at all or not? Did you contact the secondary? Well, actually, I was with... We were outside because he had popped next door. He had popped over to tell me about it and he's, he's, he spoke to his mum about it and she said, I'll have, I'll have a word about that. So, And I've seen him since and he's very, very happy. So I imagine it was just a bit of a... A, a lapse of communication because um you know don't they you think time. though russ that we're pretty fortunate even when our year sixes leave they will come back during year seven particularly yeah. the first couple of months so as a school leader we're pretty fortunate that we can have some dialogue once they've flown the nest from primary and if there was anything like that situation russ i know we've had a couple um we do either talk to mum because we still have uh, contact details for example or we'll yeah. go to the secondary and say just so you know in passing conversation the kids are happy with that as well. We're not we're not like snitching on the what the Absolutely. teachers are doing at all, but and, and it's comforting for them, isn't it? It is nice, and we're really lucky geographically because our, our biggest sort of feeder school is literally next door, and they are fantastic. I've got so many good things to say about them, um, but it means it's really easy for the, the the kids to pop next door and say hello again. A lot of them come to pick up their younger siblings, so it's nice. Right, Mike, I know you were giving this a lot of thought over the last couple of days. I saw you pondering this. You were WhatsApping me almost minute by minute telling me what you were thinking. So what are your thoughts about primary and secondary? My thoughts, and I'll go back to the example where I worked in a school that had so many feeder primaries. I don't. I think you'll probably struggle to find another example of, of that many feeder schools. And you, you could tell the students who'd come from I'm really careful with my terminology here, like really good primaries and primaries that maybe struggled a little bit. Um, and you could tell the schools that had set students up pastorally and academically to be real success stories. And you could tell the schools that had struggled to do that. So I guess my question to, to you two is, how do you do that in primary? How do you go about creating a culture where students pastorally thrive academically thrive and I don't mean in terms of the highest grades but the best that they can do for themselves um what does that look like in primary compared to secondary because we're very very results driven in secondary mm. we kind of get up we kind of build that foundation in key stage three and then really hammering key stage four and five in order for them to get the results they need to go to wherever they want to go but how do you do that in primary when you know that at the end of year six, you're going to wave them goodbye uh, and off they go. I personally think that's an excellent question. And mm -hmm. if I'm being really honest with myself over the last 
however many years I've been teaching across four different schools, I can be really honest with myself and say there were periods in each of those schools where I wouldn't have felt confident we had sent those sixes off to year seven with everything they needed to flourish behaviorally and academically. And there have been times where, as I do feel now, where, yeah, do you know what? My current year six is going up there. They're ready. They've got what they need. We're, we're teeing them up to do well. And we're, we're doing our high school friends some favors. And for me, the really big difference between when it's worked and when it hasn't has always been about whole school effective systems, always. So individual teachers don't make great schools. It's about consistent systems across the whole school. So for example, you know, and I think about this a lot now as a deputy head, if I am ensuring I've got really good, clear whole school behavior policies and approaches that mean that we embed characteristics, behaviors, routines, manners um, consistently through a child's journey, that will be habitual by the time they get to year six. Where if we've not had that, then we're, we're mopping up all the time and, and, and that won't be deeply habitual for the children. If we've got a curriculum that's really well set out and has progression built into it, then those kids are going to go up to secondary school being able to do the basics. And that's just made me think of when we did a podcast with um, Bruno Reddy, who runs Times Table Rockstars, and he tells the story of how um, he started Times Table Rockstars because he was working in a high school and he was a bit fed up of children coming up not knowing their tables. So he would he 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 said it was quite a brave thing in a secondary setting to allocate time to teaching times tables because you kind of assume that should be sorted, and it should be you know. And as I heard him talk about that, I almost felt ashamed because I thought, yeah, we've had cohorts who in some of the schools I've worked in that I've not sent them up knowing their tables, but it's never been because individual teachers couldn't teach times tables. It's because there's not been a clear kind of progression and systems to ensure that those children learn those year after year after year. So for me, the difference, um, Mike, in, in, from those cohorts you inherit where you can tell it's good and those where it's not, it's not individual teachers, it's not necessarily the year six teacher, it's whole school systems that are really well embedded um, and, and those children have just had that great journey all the way through. I don't know, I don't know who wants to come in there. Mike, you want to come back to me on that one? Yeah, I was going to pose a follow-up question then. Mm. And from a primary perspective, would you say, would you prefer a child to, to leave at the end of year six, having all those kind of um, emotional intelligent qualities that you, you just spoke about in terms of the manners, the self-awareness, or would you prefer that they had the academic knowledge behind them? Or in terms of weightings, if it was say 75%, 25%, which way round would you go? Which, which, in your experience, sets that student up for the the most for me path? For me, that that you can't you can't value one of those over the other. They and 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 you don't need to choose. They're both very very achievable things, and they should yeah. come hand in hand. Because if you've got children who behave superbly they should be learning well they should be attentive in lessons I mean clearly we all hope that our students go up and they're nice and they're decent people and you see them in year seven think you know in my case Willowbrook the kids from Willowbrook school they're great they're they're well-mannered they're nice of course I want that but I also want them to say and aren't they smart don't they know a lot aren't they capable aren't they don't they have high expectations of themselves I don't know if you feel the same Steve but I don't think those two things are uh, need to be mutually exclusive no, they're not. And let's be honest, Russ, I know I'd be more than happy if every child in my school was just at that expected level at the end of year six, 
but beautiful people as well. And that, that's what we're aiming for. And the great adept for primary school is it's the icing on a cake, but it doesn't have to be there. As long as they've got that fundamental knowledge and they, they have a decent curriculum behind it. And that's the most important thing. If the children come with a decent curriculum, a, a really wide and varied curriculum with cross-curricular links, and then we know we can send them up to you where they will go into separate lessons instead of having the same teacher all day, and they can shine in that regard as well. But you only get this from, like Russell said, consistency of expectations and consistency in what you want to see achieved and consistency across the whole school. And when the, you'll know the good schools, when they're all working as a team, naturally their ethos will be solid their vision is solid and therefore we are producing these little people that are, are growing in independency and they're they're really ready to take that next step on and it won't be a hundred percent every year of course it won't there will always be some children that need more support but if we as our leadership team can just step back and think they are well versed they totally know what to expect and that's where we're coming back to transition if we're keeping them in the loop as to what is the next step in for education will be for them, then we'll see better uh, end goals, really. Go on, Arthur. I think what Mike was saying was really interesting. Like, secondary, it's quite... Why do kids go to secondary school? They go there to get grades at the end of year 11 or year 13 so they can go off and do whatever, apprenticeships, university, whatever's right for them. And maybe it's a bit vaguer of what the what we consider the point of primary to be is it to for them to do really well in their sats or is it to prepare them for secondary school so we can continue their prep like it's like maybe an existential question of like secondary we kind of know the point of us get the mm. grades whether that's right or wrong is a, a different question but primary maybe you, you've got more questions you can ask in that in that meeting when you talk about what is primary that is a big question, isn't it? And I think, you know, there's there's so many ways you can think about that. Instilling that lifelong love of learning early on is clearly part of what I think any primary school teacher wants to achieve. But I think, you know, uh, my views changed over the years in terms of what children are capable of in primary. And I think, you know, we should, uh, clearly it's about, um, we need to understand the, the development of that child at that age range. And I think sometimes when we talk about curriculum and things, we forget about the difference between a five-year-old and an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old, just as much as for you, a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old is so different. So we have to think about that when we're, we're talking about young people. But all of those children at primary school are, are able to do remarkable things, both behaviorally and academically. You know, I watch on a an assembly say my singing assembly on a Thursday three-year-olds our nursery three-year-olds join that assembly and they walk in impeccably and sit there beautifully and they listen I can't imagine many high schools imagine that three-year-olds can do that and they're not doing it because they're scared or because uh, they've been you know drilled on it in, in such a way that means they're not enjoying their learning they're just really well behaved already and the teachers have established those routines already so for me, I mean, yes, it's about instilling a lifelong love of learning, but it's also about really helping them to achieve and get off to that best start. Because I, I know some of those cohorts I've taught in the past who I, has gone off to high school and they don't know their tables and they, um, they, they haven't got a clue about wider curriculum subjects because they've just been hammered for their sats in year six and all that. It's not good and it doesn't tee them up. 
where I think a lot of high schools understandably became a bit dismayed with that approach because they knew what was happening. They knew primary school kids weren't getting a broad and balanced curriculum. Then they were getting hammered in their SATs. Then they got these SATs results that you didn't trust because you knew they'd been cramming for it, where I think there's been a really positive shift, not in all primary schools, but in lots of them where we're doing it right now and that curriculum and progression is starting very, very early on. And that, you know, this year's year six SATs, for example, that my kids have just sat this week I know will reflect truly what they're capable of, where I've not always been able to say that in the past when it's just been cram, 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 cram. They have genuinely, whatever they've achieved, they deserve. And I, and I hope high schools are just open to the idea that with all the work schools have done on curriculum, that maybe what we're sending up now is a bit more legit, but also kids that have that passion for wider curriculum areas. They know more about things like history and geography. I think in the past, probably a science teacher or something at secondary school would say, so what do you know about science? You know, and these kids would be like, I don't know, or geography, I don't know, on those first couple of days. But I don't think it's so much like that in primaries now. I think they're, we're, they're, we're they're more inquisitive from a better curriculum now, Russ. Like, yeah. There's inquisitive minds, they're curious learners, and they want to explore these subjects. Whereas, like I said before, if you're cramming for English and maths, when they go to secondary, they don't really have a clue about humanities and that because we don't even talk in that, that terminology, humanities. It's just, here's a history lesson, here's a geography lesson, and then we're doing RE. But nowadays, I feel, like you said, Russ, not all schools, but the majority now are definitely taking this step towards providing that base for secondary to then grab them by the horn and just go with it. Yeah, I'm having a year seven form this year, um, the minute you speak about primary school, they speak about their teachers and their schools with such fondness. You can tell that they, they've come from such kind of nurturing environments um, where they felt safe and they felt cared for and they felt like the teachers are really on their side and really trying to push them. Um, so, and then yeah, they get you I, as a form tutor. Sorry, I was too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, jokes aside, even the way you're talking about that, Mike, I, I've seen a real change in my um, interactions with high schools in, in the last few years in that it feels like that's really landed now for, for high schools. There's a respect and appreciation for that that I didn't always see. And I'm really grateful for that. Like I've over the last four or five years, well, since I moved down to Devon, actually, I've I've, I've had various um, sort of tours around local high schools now, now in Exeter and also when I was based in sort of the Torquay painting area and year seven leads, for example, who gave me their time, who were happy to do enhanced transition meetings with vulnerable pupils, who you mentioned a parent earlier. I mean, I had a, a pupil who whose mum had been ex permanently excluded from the high school she was about to go to. And they were both felt that she was about to head in the same direction. And I said, look, I can tell you're super anxious about this. The year seven leads there, you know, is amazing there. Can we can we set up a, a, a meeting? Because I feel like we just need to get over this worry. He set up a walk around this, this school in Torquay. And like, you could just see the anxiety come down. And the mum was like, oh, it's changed so much since I was here. And, you know, he was so nurturing and caring and listened to this child. And I just thought that's such a beautiful example of how things have, have moved on and I think more secondary schools are going that way I hope anyway I think a really powerful thing to answer your original question Mike is as a secondary teacher going to visit a primary school going into their lessons doing observation teaching their class that's why I used to really like doing going can I go and teach like a an expert math class or anything like that and you get a sense of the students who are in the class excited to learn and then you go back to your school and you're like 
oh, these kids, year seven coming up, they're going to be great. And then that feeds through the school because you have those conversations. The worst thing is when you, you get a load of kids who turn up on the first day, you open your Excel spreadsheet, you look at your acronyms, you go, ah, oh, they've all got sixes. Nah, probably not. Ah, oh, they all got six. <laughs> nah, probably not. Right, better just start at counting again. Um, not that I've ever done that. But like that, that I've seen those conversations. Like, I'll just ignore what primary does. And I don't think those conversations happen in anywhere near as much now. And I think that's a credit to primary kind of like doing what you guys do. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, Steve, do you just kind of want to talk us through your question or point or comment? Um, we said before the podcast started, communication is one that baffles me and amazes me in equal doses when it comes to secondary. I can't comprehend how how a secondary school of over a thousand pupils can do this well. Um, and it's just from from looking at as a parent, looking at that and see, thinking, gosh, how do you communicate with us when a school does it well? And we've had our children move from one to the other during a pandemic and one school definitely did it better than the other. But the clarity you can get when you know your child has many teachers, um, a Senko that won't see them daily. And uh, do you know what? Uh, the reliance on making sure that the child isn't the only one that's telling us what they've got for homework. Um, so there's procedures in place, there's policies that all support actually ensuring that communication remains from when we go to from primary to secondary. Because when you're primary and you see the parents every day at the door, mm. suddenly we send our children off in year seven, we might not even go to that school until they're at a leavers assembly. But somehow you guys, and I commend secondary boys, there is a working relationship where communication is still strong. Uh, not always, but I know schools that do it really well and hats off to it. I can't understand how I could ever, as a leader, be part of that when it's so huge. Surely this is yours, Mike. Surely you're going to take off from this. This is yours. Well, actually, I was, I was going to hand over to you off because you've been ahead of year seven. And I, I was going to say, Steve, my answer to that is the heads of year. They mm. tie everything together and, and they're definitely the unsung heroes of secondary. You normally see them rushing through corridors, trying to go and grab a student to speak to them or, or intercept a student who's possibly having a bad day and finding out how they can help them. And they're the busiest people for me in secondary schools. And that's because they're trying to tie all that information together. Because if a student comes to me period one and I can see that they're having a bad day or they get into trouble in my lesson, I'm going straight into another lesson with another group of students. I don't have time to, to necessarily send an email or go and find someone and talk to them or you know intercept the head of year and say, I think that student's about to have a really bad day. Um, that's not because we don't care. It's because we're, we're so time poor um and once one group leaves you've got the next group lining up outside ready to come in and it's the heads a year who really kind of trawl through um any data that we put in any reports that we put in in terms of okay this student's come to me and they've they've walked away with a, a level one detention or something like that and they'll start picking up trends they'll start looking at patterns in behavior whether that's there's been you know, achievement points logged always in one subject and not in another. Um, and another subject, they've always having conflict with a teacher. And they'll try and get those people together and try and have those conversations together. You know, if they're going to maths, 
and they're flying in mass. And Arthur's given them achievement point after achievement point after achievement point. Or they're coming to me in PE <laughs> and I'm just hammering them and, and saying that this is a problem. They're not doing what we're asking. And getting us together in the same room at the same time and discussing what's working for Arthur, what he's doing for that student, what I'm not doing, what I could change about my approach. That's all instigated by that head of year. So my answer to that would be it, it's, I've seen it done really well and I've seen it done really, really poorly. Um, but for me, it doesn't get done at all if those heads a year aren't mm. the saviors of secondary. I think what we, the mistake we often make in secondary, Mark, is we go, oh, we've got a system in place. We, we've spent loads of money on whatever. And we've got a really good system. But that system is only good if the people are logging, the people are looking, and someone is looking for patterns and trends. And I think that's what you're talking about, Mike, by the head of year. Come, it's my favourite role I've ever held in education, to be honest. I, I love that role. And I think it's because you, your job is to look across the curriculum, look across these different subjects. Because they haven't just got this one teacher now, they've got maybe six, six teachers they're seeing in the day and trying to spot those trends combined with what day of the week is, like what else is happening outside of school. And it's the head of year that looks at those systems and looks for gaps. So why is that teacher not logging that? Um, or if an emergency happens, not worrying, going, I'm just going to send an email because we know that email is not going to be looked at. We spoke about this before we were recording of like, I've been ahead of year and gone, right, I've got five minutes. I'm going to run around the school. I'm going to run into the art department and say, this has happened. I'm then going to run to P. I'm then going to run somewhere else and drop that information. And that head of year role, I think, is as close to maybe as kind of the, the in-class teacher role, pastorally in a primary setting, even though I suppose most schools might would probably argue it's the form, te form tutor's teacher's role to do that. And that's not my experience. I think it's the head of year that pulls that all together. So secondary schools, if you've got good heads of year, like that is brilliant. Like give them the, the time. If you give them a little bit of time to just run around schools, they'll get that information round. And my kind of for secondary B, don't just rely on your systems. You've got to think about data is only as good as the people inputting the data. You can't analyze data unless you've got data without going too mathsy. Mike, is that, does that all make sense from kind of, I, you've line managed me as a head of year and stuff like that. So I'm sure you've got many comments here. No, I, I just, heads of year are amazing people. And oh, that's great. And should we move on? They don't get the time <laughs> and support. <laughs> they don't get the time and support that they need to do that job. Um, I've worked in a school where we had a full-time non-teacher member of staff solely for pastoral and then a teacher who was the head of year who solely dealt with academic side of that job um, that's how big it is and if you go into a school and you, you're giving someone 10 percent extra time release and expecting them to pastorally care and academically care for 200 students it's not going to get done well um, but the, the conflict of that is that you know, we've all worked in restrictive budgets in the last few years and we know that that that's a luxury having non-teaching members of staff doing positions like that. Can can I just ask around that head of year position because that really does sound like a fantastic model, and I can see how a good head of year must just be the glue that keeps everything going for that cohort of children. And what what does their communication with parents look like then? And because I think what Steve described 
the, the the chat at the door that we get at primary school or, or for me as a deputy head i'm out on that playground every morning and i might talk to seven eight nine different parents very often of those vulnerable families and so many of those conversations nip future problems in the bud and they prevent so much stuff because I've just got that natural and I'm like oh I've been meaning to catch you can I just have a quick chat about mister in year six and how he's got on this week because there's been a couple of things worrying me and I thought I'd just talk to you before it got any worse and we just nip it in the bud all the time is that the sort of thing you can do after as a head of year Uh, are you picking that phone up are you talking to any of those parents or is it just not feasible in your time it was just your last sentence there was the thing I was going to jump on of like picking the phone up. I think a really common mistake we make in secondary schools, I've worked with this, like we'll put it, we'll put it in an email, we'll put it in a letter in the kid's bag, we'll wait till it gets worse, uh, we'll follow the channels. Like there's something really powerful about calling up a parent for two, three minutes. Mm. Um, and that's what I try to do at the end of the day in lunchtime. If you make those calls, you, you often pick up something. And similar to what you're saying of, we don't have a luxury of meeting the parents in the playground, but if you make a phone call, you know, it's like sometimes within 10 seconds, you can get something's not right. And yeah. that's why this has happened at school or no, everything seems cool there. So maybe this is a school issue and you can pick up things. So my kind of advice for heads of year is like use, use the phone. It's a really powerful thing and make sure the parents know who to talk to in the school. Mm. So one thing I think, there's so many wasted conversations between parents in secondary school of the parent emails the form tutor to say how are they doing in history the form tutor has no idea because they're not a history teacher so they send it to the head of year who goes well i don't know i'm the head of year i'll send it to the history teacher the history teacher goes well okay i've got some information but i won't send this to the parent because that's not my role it needs to come from the form tutor so they send it back to the form tutor who then sends it back to the parent the parent then has a question on that point they've just raised <laughs> and the whole thing starts again so like being really clear with your parents and this comes back to transition being like if you've got a pastoral issue something's going on at home they've forgotten their kit email the head of year the form tutor whatever works for your school but if you've got a question about academics these are the people to go to and that will be different upon the context of your school some schools will want to go through the assistant head in charge of academics some schools will want it to go to the heads of department um I think being open about who the person to communicate is, because quite often we say at secondary, oh, the form tutor is your point of call. The problem is, is the form tutor is quite often the person who knows the least about the situations we could be talking about. Mike, you're a form tutor. Does that kind of, have you had those emails? Yeah, definitely. The ones that go to the school office as well. Yes. Um, sometimes with no name of the child, I just want to speak to someone about my child. Um, and you're like, who's your child and where should we direct this? And, you know, I've always got a rule that I want to email back a parent within 24 hours, even if it's just a holding email to say, I'm looking into this, please bear with me. Um, before, hopefully, like you said, after speaking to them on the phone, because the connection you make up verbally is so much better than um, through writing. And what I was going to say is one thing I know primary do so much better than secondary because the time you spend with those 30 children is those students who get lost in the middle, the gray children. Um, And I know that from being one of those students myself, not being a high flyer at school, um, not being necessarily a a problem child at school or not necessarily having specific issues that the head of year would have come and um, supported with or had to deal with. Um, 
because this just the size of the year groups, the size of the cohorts, and this is where the form tutors are really, really powerful, I believe. It's that student who comes in on time every day, does everything they're asked to do. Um, there maybe aren't those bells and whistles that you see in some students. And then they go home and they do their homework and they hand it in on time. And they're always working at that kind of level where you'd expect them to be. Sometimes they're the students that slip through the net um, in secondary schools. And I think that's where the head of year has to have a really good tutor team and has to be able to work with those tutors to recognize those students because what they're doing is amazing. And sometimes they can feel left out because it's not being recognized in the same way it was when they were at primary school. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Steve. Well, I think um, with a parent hat on, I totally agree with that. And, and actually, I, it's something I feel like primary do particularly well because of the time luxury we have in that regard. We can make a phone call to that child who's just consistent nothing nothing special but just consistently following the expectations of your school and and that is where i can totally understand if you have 250 children in a year group then yeah you're not really going to get to those children regularly but um not only with a parent how i just think that would be that would go so far because it's when you come to a parent's evening in secondary for example and they just go, yep, yeah, they're, they're exactly where they need to be. Because sometimes it's just a paper report, for example, it just says on track for their flight path, for example. If you could just have a brief conversation, and it is selfish because you don't read, is, is it necessary? Possibly not, but it's definitely settling when that's the only thing you would hear from a secondary. And like I said, we've moved from one secondary to another due to relocation. Where at the moment, they've nailed this. They, they would just drop in a quick... Um, even for our girl who's in year 13 now, just a quick phone call from the head of sick form to say, right, uh, study leave is coming up really soon. Um, this is where she's at. We'd like her to come in on a Friday afternoon. It just sets ease at mind to think, right, okay, we haven't got a nag our 17 year old going on 18 because she doesn't want that from parents. But when the, the team at school can do this, it's a godsend. It really is. It just eases everything and she feels better and still knows that we have some kind of communication with the school yeah and i think if a school gets its communication right when you get those report cards home or you have those parents evenings there shouldn't be any surprises mm. there shouldn't be any parent sat there going what why haven't i been told about this sooner and i think that's where schools need to target their efforts is just no surprises we communicate with you all the time so when you come to one of those events when you get a report card it's just confirming what you already know um who are we on to now is it you arthur it is me mike you you finish early arthur if you don't need to have your say <laughs> you, you said you couldn't wait for me to talk on this pod you were saying this was going to be one of the great times you said you haven't spoken to me enough this week mike that's what you were saying right <laughs> no so go ahead and and speak <laughs> so when we said we were going to talk about primary secondary i was thinking like what are the obvious differences and to me the one that always stands out is the way we teach subjects and what i mean by that is secondary we're naturally more siloed in the way we teach our subjects we have our maths department we have our english department we have our science department and we rarely talk unless it's in a middle leaders meeting and secretly we're really competitive with each other so we don't want to help each other too much um but we need to seem friendly oh <laughs> does the maths talk department ever talk to the art department uh it's unlikely 
is the DT. No, these things don't happen. And consequently, we become very, very siloed and we do our one thing. And a consequence of that is what we really struggle with in secondary is we don't teach topics across the curriculum. Um, I know it's it's changing now in secondary is a lot more what we might call project days or whatever, trying to teach topics. But it's something primary does brilliantly. Um, I've seen loads of stuff on Twitter of people doing, oh, today we're doing volcanoes. And here's all the things we're going to learn about volcanoes and we're bringing in the maths. Um, and, but my question was kind of for you guys more as like your deputy head types, right, Mike? Uh, the deputy heads. Um, that's a very old T in teaching private Joe Day is Mike. As deputy heads, how do you go about creating a culture where people are happy to talk about subjects with other subjects? Because it's something I found incredibly hard to broach when you go to a new school. Like, we're going to talk to an English department. We don't talk to them. Like <laughs> so, so how can we be more friendly like primary, really? <laughs> that's a multi-layered uh, question, because on one level there, that last bit you've talked about, it's almost the easy bit. And I might let, well, not the easy bit, but uh, it's almost a separate question. And I'll let Steve add that bit in a minute about, <laughs> no, but just about, bit. you said something nice before we hit record about that, Steve. Just about <laughs> that, that communication between mm. like subject leads and stuff and how we all communicate across the school. I think that I'll let you have that one in a minute. But the bit about topic work project whatever you want to say you said primaries do it really well right i'm going to be controversial here and say i don't think a lot of primaries do do that well <gasps> i think i think a lot of uh primary schools got into the habit of doing some really meaningless topic work for many many years and it caused lots and lots of damage right so that's going to be a really unpopular opinion with some people and very popular with a few others so i'm talking from my own experience here my own change of opinion that's taken place over my career so yes one of the beauties of primary school is the interconnectedness of it that i'm a teacher that has my kids all day every day and that i can make those links wherever i want and those truly meaningful links are amazing are amazing and need to be made but for many 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 years before we thought carefully about curriculum design what would happen is you'd go oh volcanoes like you said let's come up with a catchy title we've got volcanoes i'm going to squeeze in a bit of maths i'm going to squeeze in a bit of this and there would be some lovely activities happening on sure that were lovely and that children enjoyed the actual learning that took place was wishy-washy, not necessarily deep and meaningful, and not necessarily building on prior learning and teeing up future learning. So it wasn't that there was something inherently evil about that cross-curricular work or topic work, as you called it, but children really, it was very much about activity. Now, the positive move, and I I, it's actually something I'm positive about Austin about with the new framework is that the greater emphasis on curriculum meant that schools stripped all that back and went hang on we've got to think about the journey our children take as a historian as a mathematician as a scientist and so on and that focus on subject disciplines and that progression of learning through that journey has been really powerful now one of our curriculum drivers in my school is powerful links and, and what we mean by that is, yes, we've got this vertical progression now of history and geography and everything. We do still want to expose those links across subjects because they're amazing when done meaningfully. And the, the, the kind of classic problem in the primary setting is someone would go, you'd see it on Facebook groups. Um, anyone got a good English book that I can use linked to my topic on light? And it's like, 
come on, choose the very best English book. Don't worry about one that has to have some terrible tenuous link to light because you're doing that in science. So it's about moving from those dodgy, meaningless links to genuinely powerful links. Now, when you do that, amazing. And there are loads of primary schools now doing that very, very well. Um, I think you just have to be cautious. You have to be clear about why you're making those links. If you think about learning and schema development, that the acid test of a good link across subject is, does it enhance the learning in both subjects? So if you want to make a link between your history and your art, and you're gonna do some sort of activity or task or lesson where those links are explicitly made, does it improve their knowledge and or skills in both of those subjects? If it does, and it enhances that scheme of development and gives them a broader uh, knowledge, then brilliant. And my last bit before I finish around and pass over to Steve is um, I really like what Andrew Percival does in his school at Stanley Road, where they have their um, kind of curriculum ge geography maps on in the classrooms. And what the teachers do throughout the year is as they make links across other subjects, RE and so on, they will they will take these lovely pieces of string and they will put information up so that children do see that their learning connects over time and in different subjects but again it's that powerful links it's not let's do a nice one-off topic day but yeah in terms of how people collaborate and talk to each other across subjects i'll go to you steve on that one uh, thanks russ but actually russ what you just said right at the end then is these powerful links and that the children understand these powerful links not just the adults and it's vital that the adults understand it for sure yeah. and and curriculum days i think we're going a long way now from from when i think back to how i was as an nqt now an ect um the inset days that you'd have you would be looking at a topic like heroes and villains and just plucking things out of the air saying right we can do this in english we can do this in history oh, oh thesis and a monitor yeah and then it was all quite tenuous. Now with the new curriculum, I do agree with Russ that the good thing from this new curriculum is it's more explicit. We are looking at individual subjects now, which will naturally help children progress into secondary. Um, and we want to know, like Russ said, how to be a good historian. What great key skills to learn as a from like the age of five to 11, how to be a great historian and what skills it takes to be in this role. And then when we think, right, okay, how do we pull all this together? Well, communication at a primary school level is vital. Staff meetings and key teams meeting together is a really great way of ensuring, not that they're tokenistic, we don't just want a STEM week and go, oh yeah, maths have worked with uh, the tech team. Yeah, fantastic. And the science team have joined in. No, we need it to be so much more embedded that what we do are, is creating these powerful links. So I know uh, uh, my school would be having uh, like literacy and language teams where we're not just looking at oh would they learn English and how do we mimic uh, something like that in French no it's going much deeper than this and it's really looking at the curriculum we are providing the children because this diet should be made up of several different teams STEM team the knowledge and understanding team the expressive arts team for example but it's essential that a school has it at a level where all the staff, even our support staff, are involved in these teams to ensure that we know what we're giving. But being, it always comes back to that, that what we are actually doing is providing the very best links horizontally, horizontally and vertically to make sure that they're learning year on year and they're developing this knowledge further and can recap on what they learned last year, how it affects them now in year five, for example, and then what they're going to do in year six. And it's just this progression of study that they can then move into 
secondary and take it even further with more explicit teaching from a specialist teacher, basically. I think what you're saying about powerful links is really interesting because one thing I've always found as a maths teacher when these days always happen is the level of maths needed to do something in the real world is so much higher than what the students always have, like almost at every level. So year seven's like, how can we do this? I'm like, that is like year 13 knowledge, maybe even <laughs> higher. Like, and once you get to year 10, like there's no chance. And I think also the more we learn as teacher about how students learn, we understand more that knowledge needs to come before the application of knowledge. So one thing we found a lot in secondary schools is like, oh, we need to do the, these days where we're, we're doing stuff. We need parents to come and go like, oh, look, he's built something or she's built something and building something takes skills and that knowledge needs to come first. So it's really interesting to hear you kind of saying what I kind of feel as a maths teacher, because whenever people can we bring maths into this? I'm like, yes, for that, for that class. No, no, no. Like even I would struggle. <laughs> Even I would struggle, and I'm a very, very medium maths teacher. Um, Mike, <laughs> does PE bring in lots of other subjects? I've seen it done. I, and again, this goes back to what Russell was saying about these tenuous links of um, like, oh, English, we're teaching a poem, and Art are going to do a painting about that poem. Is there any chance you can timetable your dance unit in the same time? And can they do a dance about that poem? And and it was all tenuous and you weren't pushing the students on as far as they could go. What I find really interesting about this is primary moving away from um, anti-disciplinary learning. While secondary, uh, uh, there's a, a lot of secondary schools talking about moving towards it because if you want to go and be an engineer, you need to be able to combine your IT skills with your, uh, let's say DT skills and graphic skills from art um, so why not teach those as an anti-disciplinary subject where they have they work on one scheme of work but they have one lesson with an IT teacher one lesson with a DT teacher one lesson with an art teacher maybe and and that's that's their their subject and then when they get to GCSEs they'll split back up and they'll use all that kind of uh, cross-pollination of knowledge that they got at key stage three to then specialize and then when they go off to university they'll unspecialize again and do these wider subjects but it that takes so much planning and you almost need to retrain your teachers to do that so i'm not sure if there is a long-term benefit to doing that or whether you just need to have a really good as a senior leader a really good overview of what's being taught in your school when it's being taught and then looking at aligning certain units. And like you said, Russell, having those really powerful links between those. So the art teacher can say, we're doing this at the moment. I know in this other subject, you're doing this. And think about how these two things relate to each other. Think about what we can draw on our knowledge from that subject and bring it into our specialist subject. And I think that's where schools can create a really powerful curriculum if they spend their time and their energy trying to do that. It reminds me of when you were in NQT, ECT, of like one of the teacher standards is like, have you mentioned other subjects? I think when I was trained as a teacher and you'd be like, so we're doing this on fractions. Pizzas are cut into fractions. Cooking. That's a lesson. Done. Nailed. <laughs> moving on. And we're kind of moving away from that. And as you said, yeah. like one powerful link is going to top a hundred tedious links. And it's that link that the pupil will remember. And then that's going to spark something else because they can really see how those two things link. 
And that's when like maths gets really exciting when you suddenly see that link, but you might only see it once, like it doesn't come all the time. Mm. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. I think Mike, what you're saying is like primary trying to be more secondary and secondary trying to be more primary. Yeah. And the, I, just from a primary point of view, whenever you start talking about, um, cause I think it, it, it is the secondary world that's got primary thinking more about that. I really like the nuance from someone like Emma Turner who will talk about, okay, we do need to think about disciplinary knowledge and subject specific, but we also need to recognize we've got five-year-olds in the building and what does life look like for them? What does it, do I build time into my curriculum for them to develop their motor skills because they can't even pick up a pair of scissors and cut properly yet? You know, and she, she's such a great voice if you want to read some of her blogs about how you can do that and a new book about, big plug for Emma's new book about curriculum simplicitous. She talks about that, but she really gets the pragmatic side for a primary school that you you can't have kind of blanket approaches across your primary school that will suit a four-year-old to an 11-year-old. You've got to think about their their emotional development, their motor skill development, all those things as well in, in how you develop all that, that kind of disciplinary um, knowledge. So yeah, she's a, she's a great one to listen to if you're in a primary school and you're keen to adopt more sort of subject specific disciplines, but you want to do it in a way that's actually going to work. I think what's really interesting from talking to you guys is just as a secondary teacher and secondary schools, we tend to focus on secondary teaching and secondary schools. And I'm not saying I'm going to go and read every book on primary teaching. I'm not going to go and train as a primary specialist, but like sometimes just having these conversations is a really interesting way to think about my own teaching and how it links into that pupil's journey as a learner. I was listening to one of your pods the other day. I was on a curriculum with Lika Sharma and it just gave me some ideas that I'm now thinking about and think about like not thinking about in a primary perspective, but taking that idea and trying to apply it to maybe a secondary perspective or whatever place I'm working. So one of my recommendations to anyone listening this pod, because we might have people listening on T and teaching who have never thought about primary and on dynamic deputies who never thought about secondaries. You don't have to do it all the time, but having those conversations every now and again is amazing. Go to ask if you can go and teach a lesson in one of the feeder schools because it's such a powerful thing. Uh, go listen to a pod once in a while on something outside your specialty. Um, and I think like that's one of the reasons us four kind of wanted to get together and have this conversation to just we we explicitly said like this is not going to be like secondary versus primary, the ultimate battle. It's like what can we learn from you and what can you learn from us? And like that's just done by talking sometimes. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed just hearing your perspective. And I think hopefully all our listeners have picked up on the mutual respect we all have for colleagues right across the profession. We've got so much to learn from each other. And I'm sure it's the same reason you launched a podcast, same reason we did it, is we um, get this free CPD from just chatting away from each other. So uh, I've really enjoyed this chat, guys. Thank you. And guys, if our listeners want to hear more from you, get your book, what do they do? Where do they go? Thank you for mentioning the book. <laughs> well, I almost said when you were saying, you know, um, it's made me want to pick up a primary book. Well, just one, just one. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, we we have written a book that we're really proud of called Talking Teaching with the Dynamic Deputies, Inspiring CPD for Every Teacher. And it is very much inspired by the first couple of years of the podcast and, and some of the people we've spoken to. We really want to do a second one. We've got so many ideas now, but you guys need to buy enough of the first book for the publisher to ask us to make a second one. Um, and our podcast is the Dynamic Deputies podcast. And you can find us at Dynamic Depths on uh, Instagram, Twitter. And we've got a Facebook group called the Dynamic Depth 
Tees Facebook group as well. So you can find us there. And what about you guys? Where does everyone connect to you? Because I know this is, we're, we're hoping to share this on both our podcasts. Mike, did you finish the book or the did you start the book? Um, we, need, we need a working title and then we need some words. I think it might be called Talking Nonsense with the tea and teaching. Perfect. Um, it's catchy. No, but we we are almost exclusively on Twitter, aren't we, Arthur? We are indeed at T and Teaching, the letter T and Teaching. Um, ask us questions, give us feedback. You can hear the podcasts on basically all the platforms. Um, if you're on LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. Mike, you won't find Mike on LinkedIn. <laughs> Not on LinkedIn. I, I, my social media presence is similar to what it was in about 2007. <laughs> Still got yeah, MySpace. <laughs> MySpace. Oh, Bebo's going strong. Emerson yeah. <laughs> Messenger. Yeah. If you just search Teen Teaching on Twitter, you'll find us. Get involved in conversation. Listen to the podcast. Let us know what you think. Um, but chaps, it's been fantastic. I've learned so. I've got so many notes now to go through and have another read. So uh, got a bit of reading to do tonight. After that, and then maybe Mike will buy your book and give it a glance, just so your publishers get a bit happy. I think. That would be nice. I, I might have sent him a free copy otherwise. Be kind, guys. Be, be kind. Free. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks well, so much, guys. Enjoy Thank your you. evening. See you, chaps. Bye. Nice. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. Arthur, I love these episodes when we get to speak to other podcasters about what they're learning from their podcasts and that opportunity to speak to primary colleagues and have a real focused conversation on what is different and what is similar in our two settings it's, it's just amazing and I took so much out of that conversation but I'm, I'm really keen to hear what your main takeaway was yeah firstly just thanks to dynamic deputies as we kind of said loads of times we started this pod to talk to people so we could become better educators and that was just another example of a conversation where I've taken loads away from. But for me, the really key one was when they were talking about um, cross-curriculum links and they were talking about it's got to be powerful links. Um, and I thought that was really interesting to hear from our primary colleagues because our perception is primary do that all the time. And what they were saying is like, no, like when we do it, we do it really properly. We go for these powerful links. We're not just doing it for the sake of it. And I think that's something we can take away as secondary because we're in that kind of stage now where we we know we should be doing cross curriculum stuff and maybe we are just doing it for the sake of it. So let's listen to people who've been doing it for years and they're like, no, you, when you do it, it's got to be powerful. So for me, that was a really powerful thing to take away. Um, my wife is going to be moaning Mike, about how often we've just said powerful because apparently that's a word we use often in the takeaways. What about you, Mike? What was your key takeaway? Yeah, it was powerful. Um... <laughs> My one is communication. It's something you don't necessarily think about as a secondary school teacher. The, the struggles and the difficulties and the barriers we have with communication that primary schools don't necessarily have and how much more conscious we have to be about powerful conversation um, and really effective communication. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll go back to school and, and really consciously think about am I communicating as much as I can do with colleagues with parents with students and how am I communicating that information and especially in September with the new year seven students and their parents how do we get that right as a school 
how do we make sure that everyone feels like they're in the loop the whole time um, in order to support that transition process and in order for that not to suddenly go from lots of communication from a primary school to barely anything from a secondary school? I couldn't agree more. Transition, you're not just transitioning the students, you're transitioning their learning, but you're also transitioning the parents. Um, what a what a really interesting chat, uh, chat, Mike, like taking so much away from it. And I would really implore, like, if you're just secondary and you're like, so, go and listen to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, go and do some reading, go and check out some stuff on Twitch. You'll take stuff away that you can bring to your school. And I think what you said there, Mike, about communication, like acknowledging what maybe where we can't do something as well as primary and what can we do to make that up? Because they do stuff brilliantly. Let's learn from it. Definitely. What a bombshell to finish on. Thank you to listen for thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tea and Teaching. If you've enjoyed the content of this episode, please feel free to share it with other educators. And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.